Hi, I'm Greg Lefebvre, and this is The Compulsive Storyteller, a series of short personal stories where we explore the idea that truth can be stranger than fiction. This week's episode, entitled Old Dog, New Tricks, takes us to Cape Cod. It is the final episode of a trilogy about the life of my dog, Tia, chronicling our last vacation together in her final years, and proves that an old dog can learn new tricks. This story is the last of a trilogy, which starts with a podcast called Stray Pup, followed by 47 in dog ears. They are interdependent, so best listened to in order. Old Dog New Tricks Tia and I are in Provincetown, Massachusetts, staying at Captain Jack's Wharf. Back in New York, my dog seemed to have problems with her rear hips, so she's starting to have difficulty getting around. She's a shepherd mix, and many shepherds suffer from hip dysplasia because they were inbred when they were so popular. Sadly, I'm figuring that this is probably the last trip we'll be visiting here together, which adds a certain poignancy to almost everything we do. Captain Jack's was originally a wharf of small shacks where fishermen stored their gear, set on a long pier. The most unique feature of the wharf is its location on the tidal flats near the breakwater. These flats are the backwater section of the bay. This geography has created a vast area where the water empties completely out. At high tide, the water level below the wharf is a good eight feet deep, but at low tide, it sits on dry land atop the tall, stilt-like pilings. The tide goes out so far that you can walk at dead low tide for almost a mile on the sandy, muddy flats. One of the joys of being here is that one minute you're sitting in your little colorfully painted shack above the bay's lapping waves, and then later in the day, you look out over a vast, sandy desert, a magical transformation. I noticed that almost upon our arrival from the city, Tia seems to be climbing the stairs with relative ease. Maybe it's the sea air, maybe the memory of previous visits, but she seems like a younger dog. One of her first moves when the tide goes out is to run at full speed in a huge circle out on the tidal flats, so far out that at a certain point she's just a speck on the horizon. This is unheard of behavior for all those poor city dogs back in New York. Once she returns on her circular path, she decides to go for another lap, and I try to join her, but there's no way I can keep up. She comes back from her second time around, and when I finally return, I find her completely collapsed on her side, on the wet sand in the shadow of the wharf, her breathing heaving up and down, and her tongue hanging sideways out of her mouth dipping into the sand. She's completely conked out, and I flop down next to her. The next day, Tia is still beat, so I give her some doggy aspirin and she spends the day in our shack snoozing. Today we're going to try to undertake one of our yearly rituals, a day-long hike along the uninhabited and wild national seashore on the eastern edge of the Upper Cape. We take a cab to Race Point Lighthouse. I have a backpack full of treats, water, and supplies. As we begin, the shoreline with its breaking waves and cold drafts from the depths slowly curves to our right for the entire hike. Immediately, we encounter one of my favorite parts of the trip. Along the water's edge, there is a single half-mile line of black-backed gulls, unevenly standing, facing out to sea. In past summers, Tia always charges up to the nearest gulls, 
would take off and leisurely fly away from us to the far end of the flock. She continues to run toward the line, and more gulls take to the air. As she repeats her run, she's creating a long oval of gulls, standing, taking off at her approach, and then landing at the other end. Most summers, she continues this for a mile or two, relentlessly pushing the circle of gulls along. But today, that's not the case. She walks up to the nearest gull, they take off, and then she gives the game up right away. She walks to some low trees in the dunes and lays down in the shade. I join her, so saddened that she's not interested. After we sit for a while, she doesn't want to continue, probably remembering from the previous years that it's a long hike. I coax her, but she's not getting up, so finally I pick her up and carry her back to the lighthouse and a cab to Captain Jack's. The rest of our vacation, sadly, is more of the same. I can tell she's depressed because she can't do what she's always done in the past. Back in New York, she comes up with some new tricks in her old age. For the past 15 years, when she wanted to go out into the backyard, she would bark a single time and wait for me to unlock the back door, then run up the three steps to go outside. Now she barks once, waits for me to open the back door, and then she still refuses to move until I lift her hindquarters to help her up the stairs. She's actually retrained me, and now this becomes our standard operating procedure for whenever she wants to go out. Within a few weeks of our getting back to New York, Tia begins to go downhill again. If she's laying down, she has a hard time getting up and sometimes yelps with pain in certain positions. It's definitely her dysplasia acting up. We go to the vet, and his cortisone shots help for a little while, but then they too stop working. Tia finally stops walking altogether, and I buy her a special doggy wheelchair sling for her hindquarters. She wheels around using only her front legs. Then she simply stops doing that, too. She's unwilling to walk at all and stops eating as well. The vet tells us that this may be the end, and we are grief-stricken when we make an appointment to take her in and put her down. My wife Mariko is from Japan, very traditional and a bit of a clean freak. In past years, she's cared deeply about Tia, but doesn't really like to touch her because she's not the cleanest of dogs lying on the floors, indoors and out, and sticking her nose in some nasty places on the street. Mariko does enjoy feeding her, though, and makes Tia sit after preparing her food in a newly washed dish each night, and then places it in front of her, claps her hands, and Tia commences eating while Mariko looks on with a big smile. Like many Japanese people, Mariko naturally practices various ceremonies and memorial traditions. The night before the vet appointment, She prepares a last meal for Tia, with all the treats she loves, sliced chicken, sliced tomatoes, dog biscuits and gravy, and the like. As she places the beautifully arranged platter next to the bed where Tia is lying on her side, we're both crying heavily, but then the dog starts to thump her tail on the bed, and from a lying position, turns her head and quickly scarfs down the meal and is enthusiastically ready for more. She seems so alive that in the morning, We call the vet and cancel the appointment. While she continues to eat after that, she stops going to the bathroom altogether. After a few days, it's obvious that she's in pain, and we reschedule the appointment. Before we leave in a cab for the vet, 
Mariko ties a big, beautiful bow of translucent Japanese fabric around Tia's neck. Arriving at the vet, I carry her into the back room where there's an operating table and lay her down there. She doesn't seem nervous or upset. Then Mariko places a dozen white tulips in a Japanese wrap alongside her on the operating table. As tears roll down our faces, the vet tells us, You know, I've been putting dogs down for 20 years now, and no one has ever put flowers on the table before. It seems like such an obvious thing to do. Even he gets a little teary from Mariko's gesture. He then injects Tia in her back thigh. She lays with eyes open for a minute, then slowly yawns widely, with her tongue curled in a way I've never seen before, and closes her mouth and eyes as if she's ready for a nap. After a moment, the vet says, She's gone, and we both continue to cry. It's very sad that the lifespan of dogs is so much shorter than that of humans. I probably will not live to see the day, but I think that one day, dogs will be engineered to live as long as we do. I will always be sorry that that didn't happen before Tia's passing. She was, after all, the greatest dog ever. Compulsive Storyteller is written and narrated by me, Greg Lefebvre, and co-produced with Peter Kokoma, who also made our theme song. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love your help sharing the show. Please subscribe to The Compulsive Storyteller for free on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen, and it would be great if you could leave a review. Follow the show on Instagram, at The Compulsive Storyteller, and check out our website for more info at thecompulsivestoryteller.com. Thanks for listening, and if you didn't like this one, the next one will be another story. Mm-hmm.